Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me once again to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, as we continue our study through Revelation 1 through 3, we'll be looking this morning at verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. As you're turning there, I want to uh, just thank you, uh, those of you who are fasting and praying as we started an initiative a couple of weeks ago to take 70 days here in the fall to fast and pray for our church. These prayer guides are going out every single Sunday, and they are given out in response to the sermon that I preached. So I'll preach this morning. A sermon guide will be posted this afternoon that will lead you on how to pray this week. I want to just say that I've been so encouraged by the amount of testimonies I've heard over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Someone stopped me on Tuesday, and someone stopped me Wednesday night at church and said, Listen, I've never fasted before. I'm doing it. Here's what God's showing me and teaching me. And the goal of all of this is that we might listen to these words to the churches by Jesus, and then we might stop and ask ourselves, Lord, are you saying something to us as a church? Would you expose something, reveal something, help us to be ablaze with your glory like we're talking about? I absolutely believe without question that God blesses this type of corporate fasting because I believe without question God blesses those who seek him. And as we seek him corporately, in ways that we will never understand, God will bless us. So keep doing it. Keep being faithful. If you haven't joined in, join in with us and uh, take that prayer guide. Even if you're not fasting, just be praying with us as I'm putting these prayer guides together every week that God would lead us and encourage us and most of all that we would have his blessing and favor. You know, I think it's true of all of us that we have areas in our life in which Instead of dealing with an issue, we just ignore it in hopes that it might go away. Maybe we're overwhelmed or unsure or scared of what it might be to engage in this certain issue, but we often just feel like, well, if we just act like it doesn't exist, if we act like it's not there, if we act like it's not a problem, just maybe it will no longer be a problem. Some of us do this with money. You know, maybe if I just don't open my account, it's all going to be fine. And if I just don't know what's happening there, everything's just going to work out. I think almost all of us in some way do it with conflict. Well, if I just ignore the conflict and act as if the conflict doesn't exist, maybe it just won't exist. And after a while, it will maybe seem like it doesn't exist, but it will still be there. Some of us do this with Our health. You know, maybe if I just don't ever go to the doctor, I'll never be sick. I know there's a tumor the size of a basketball coming out of my neck, but maybe if I ignore it, maybe it it just won't be there. I'm just going to act like it doesn't exist. This is the approach I take with email. Maybe, Maybe if I just don't open it this week, it won't be there. And no one will write me an email. But I have discovered, like you have, if we choose to ignore these issues, somehow they're still there. And almost always, they're worse. The money situation, the conflict, the health situation, even the emails are just worse. Because although we often tend to take this approach, I think all of us discovered this approach doesn't actually work. Now, there is one area in which the vast majority of Christians tend to take this same approach. Almost universally. There's one area in which Christians all try to seem that if we just ignore this one issue, maybe it won't be there. And it is in the area of dealing with the devil. 
We know he's there. We know he's real. We know that he's powerful. And we know that he's seeking to devour us. We know all of these things. We've heard this a thousand times. We are fully aware that we have an enemy who literally wants to do anything he can to take him down, to take us down. But maybe we're overwhelmed, maybe we're scared. I think most of the time we're just unsure what to do with him. I mean, we've heard a lot of different ways to deal with him, some of those crazier than others. And so because of our uncertainty of what to do, I think we would agree that most of us just act like he's not there. That act as if he's not real, that very few of us are doing anything to deal with the devil. But I'm here to tell you, that you might choose to ignore him, but he will not choose to ignore you. He is still there, he is still powerful, and he is still active. Let me just give you a little help in this area. When it comes to dealing with the devil, we have to understand that he has one primary weapon. There is one thing he uses more than he uses anything else, and almost all of the spiritual warfare in your life and almost all the attack of the enemy in your life is boiled down to this one weapon of the enemy. It is simply this. He lies. He lies. John chapter 8, Jesus tells us in verse 44, right after he tells us that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, he then goes on to say that the devil is a liar, that this in his very nature, that there is, listen, there is no truth in him and is it possible for him to speak and say the truth? And then it says this, he is the father of lies. This is what he does and he's been doing it from the beginning. This is what he did with Eve. He did not go to Eve and show her the consequences or even try to tell her all of the things he wanted her to do. He simply just came and lied. And what the enemy knows is this. If he can simply get us to believe a lie, then our heart and our actions will follow. You know that no one has really ever had a massive moral fall. No, no, no. No one has a massive moral fall. They have a slow moral decline that ends up looking to us from the outside as a fall, and it all began with believing some lie. You know, this is, this is what a demonic stronghold is. A demonic stronghold is a lie that we believe. Maybe we've believed it. Maybe generations around us have believed it. And it's very clear that there are such things as demonic strongholds. They are lies that we believe, that the enemy has gotten us to believe, that have literally built a wall around us that are often almost impossible to take down because the wall is so thick. There is such thing as a demonic stronghold, and it is a lie. Now, if this is true, if the devil's primary tactic in our lives is to get us to simply believe a lie, knowing that our heart and actions will follow, then it also means that our primary weapon against the enemy is truth. Truth. How do you fight the enemy? Well, you fight the enemy the way Jesus did. When Jesus did battle with the devil, he fought with truth. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to put on the armor of God. In verse 17, it says that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have one offensive weapon, and it is the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 10 says that when we want to take down demonic strongholds, we take down demonic strongholds with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lying is the greatest tool of the enemy, and the truth is the greatest weapon of the believer. And listen, whenever there's a battle with truth against a lie, the truth can always win. 
but it only wins if you know it, believe it, and use it. This is the message that Jesus was giving to the church at Pergamon. Jesus gives us this picture of himself as the truth, the one ultimate authority. Jesus is ablaze with the truth. The church exists to be ablaze with the glory of God that we might manifest who it is Christ is to the world. And if it is true that Jesus is truth, the church must be ablaze with the truth. But the church at Pergamon, although believed the truth, at the same time tolerated lies. They allowed the enemy to come in the church and there were people believing lies. Those lies were leading them into idolatry and then leading them into immorality. And the church as a whole was seeing it but wasn't doing anything about it. And Jesus calls the church as a whole to repent because of their failure to deal with the lies believed by a minority of believers. What he wants us to understand from Pergamum is this is that in a world filled with lies, the church must defend and declare the truth. In a world filled with lies, the church must declare and defend the truth. Look at what he says in Revelation 2. Follow with me, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It is Christ's desire for the church in Pergamum, for the church this morning to be ablaze with truth, that we would reflect the very character and nature of Jesus Christ who is in fact the truth. And the question is this, how can we as a church avoid the sin of Pergamum and be ablaze with the truth of Christ? I think this text tells us three ways, three ways in which we as a church can be ablaze with the truth. Here's the first one. I encourage you to write this down. We must hold the truth with conviction. We must hold the truth with conviction. The passage begins with a picture of Jesus Christ. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And let me remind you of something. Every letter begins with a picture of Jesus Christ. And every one of those pictures is just a small part of the picture we got in Revelation 1. This is why we began our series with a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1. It's been an entire week on that because every single letter is going to pull something back from that. 
And what Jesus does is he takes part of the vision of himself, which John saw in Revelation 1. He pulls a portion of that out, gives it to every church because it's specifically what that church needs. He knew that the church at Pergamum needed to be reminded of the vision of Jesus Christ who has the sharp two-edged sword. But not only is every one of those visions important for that church, listen, it is those visions which determine the direction of every church. Our vision of Christ matters. Our vision of Christ determines what we think about ourselves and what it is that God has called us to do. You cannot have a glorious vision of the church unless it begins with a glorious vision of Jesus Christ. This is why every time we gather from beginning to end with every verse, every announcement, every song, every sermon, we are making much of Jesus Christ. That he is to have preeminence, Colossians 1. He is to have first place. He is the one to be exalted. And as we see him, we then understand who we are and what we are to do. So Pergamum needed this fresh vision of a sharp, two-edged sword. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, we know from Revelation 1 that this sharp, two-edged sword was coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ. We know from Ephesians chapter 6 that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we could say a lot about why it's sharp and why it's two-edged and the way in which it has the ability to pierce into the crevices of our heart and our life in which no one else can see. But the bottom line is this. Jesus wanted them to understand the absolute authority of God's Word. The absolute authority authority of God's word. What God says is always true. Now this was significant for Pergamum because in the city of Pergamum, it was the home of the proconsul. The proconsul was the highest civil authority in all of Rome. This was the seat of military power. This is the seat of judicial power. The proconsul is the group that had the ability to determine who lives and who dies. They were literally known as the ones who hold the sword. They have authority of the sword. If you say, what is the proconsul? They would be known as those who have the authority of the sword. They could determine who lives and who dies. So what Jesus was saying to the church at Pergamum is this. As believers, we know that you are fearing the authority of the sword, but we are here to tell you that there is a greater sword and a greater authority, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the proconsul's sword will never get to you until it first goes through the sword of Jesus Christ. That there is an ultimate authority and his name is Jesus. That this picture of Jesus is showing us that there is no authority higher and no power that is greater. And the church is called to hold the truth that is the ultimate authoritative truth. There is one absolute authoritative truth and Jesus has it. He says in John 14, 6, I am the truth. A couple of weeks ago, our staff went out on an afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, and we participated in what's called the Great Exchange. Anyone uh, of our members is able to do it. As a matter of fact, there's something in our bulletin this week about it. Every month or so, we'll go do evangelism on campus. Uh, There is a a little safe place where you can say anything on campus, and uh, we go there, and we interact with students and take surveys. And so we took our whole pastoral staff out there, and we shared the gospel all afternoon. A few things were really interesting to me. The first one was the amount of people that wanted to engage in a conversation. You could just say, hey, we're taking a survey about spiritual things. Would you be interested in answering questions? Most of them said yes. I was surprised by that. 
I was more surprised by the few people who knew anything about Jesus Christ. I mean, I still feel like we're in the Bible Belt, and you would think that the majority of kids there would know Christ. Out of every person I talked to, I had one person tell me, listen, I know where you're going. I walk with Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. I go to a church in the area. One person out of all of those. The other thing that was interesting to me is how many of them believe in any kind of absolute truth. In other words, what they would say is this, we know that's true for you, but that's not true for me, and you don't have the right to tell me that that should be true for me. That your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, and it's impossible for you to tell me that I have to believe what you believe. I just always find it ironic that they absolutely believe that statement that there is no absolute truth. They absolutely believe that we have no right to be the ones that say that we have the truth and no one else has the truth. Let me just tell you something. The hardest truth to hold is the most important truth that we hold, and that is that all truth is from Jesus Christ. We believe in absolute truth, that if Jesus says it, it is in fact true. Whether it's easy to believe or hard to believe, everything in this book is the truth of God, comes from the character of God who cannot lie. We believe in absolute truth that comes from this book. And there is no harder truth to believe and to hold on to in this day than that simple truth. But we must hold with conviction that there is no truth outside of Jesus Christ. Do you know, this is, this is really significant when we come to the Great Commission. Because in the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Do you know what that means? That means whether we preach the gospel in Bogart or in Burma, we have the right, under the authority of Christ, to say to every single person, no matter what they believe, that you must submit to Jesus Christ. That no matter where you go, Jesus is the right answer. No matter where you go, Jesus is the ultimate truth. Whether they've ever heard the name of Jesus or not, there is one authoritative word, and it comes from Christ. The authoritative word of God and the church, in an increasingly difficult time, must hold on to these convictions so that we can be ablaze with the truth of Christ. But I need you to think about something with me for just a minute. If the goal is for us to be ablaze with Christ so that people see Christ when they see us, we must not only be ablaze with truth, listen, we must be ablaze with grace. I have to say this because in John 1.14, it tells us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. There is never a time in which Jesus compromises the truth. Everything he says is true, but Jesus declares the truth with grace. And I just feel that sometimes in the kind of southern Bible Belt culture in which we're in, that if a preacher wants to get some really good amens and really wants to fire people up, he just starts talking about certain sins. That if he wants to get the people going, he can talk about divorce or homosexuality or alcohol or liberals, whatever it is, and just get the church applauding, and they will applaud. But I want to say to you this. Our arrogance in declaring the truth might get some applause, but it doesn't engage an unbeliever in listening to our truth. Do we need to stand with conviction? Absolutely, yes. But we must declare it with grace and truth. Russell Moore, who is the president of our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist, talks a lot about convictional kindness. He gets it from 2 Timothy 2, where Paul is telling Timothy to deal with all of these sins. And in the midst of dealing with the sins, he says this, And Timothy, be kind to everyone. 
This is the heart of Christ. We must have convictions and hold them, but we must hold them with convictional kindness, not only because it's the heart of Christ, but listen, because all of us have sin. And it's only because of the grace of God that any of us know the truth. And I've just noticed in the church that everyone loves to stand up against the sins that they don't struggle with. You know what I'm talking about? You ever heard that story of the first time the great American evangelist D.L. Moody met the great famous preacher C.H. Spurgeon in London? And Moody walked up to Spurgeon's door and Spurgeon opened the door with a massive cigar in his mouth. Moody was aghast. The story says that he began to tumble back toward the stairs. He simply looked at Spurgeon and said, how can you, O man of God, smoke that cigar? To which Spurgeon walked forward, pointed to his belly and said, the same way you, O man of God, can be that fat. (laughs) Like we love everybody else's sins. And if you've got a sin that I don't have, man, what a great opportunity for me to jump in on your sin. Listen, this church must move forward with convictional kindness because every one of us came to Christ with deeply wicked hearts. We don't preach this with arrogance. We preach it with humility, pleading with people to submit to Jesus Christ. Why? Because we love them. And the truth comes with grace and it is at that moment in which we see the power of God fall. But if we want to be ablaze with truth, we must hold the truth with conviction, grace and kindness. The second thing we see from this is if we want to be ablaze with truth, we must not only hold the truth with conviction, we must stand for truth with courage. Write that down. We must stand for truth with courage. We hold it with conviction. This is the word of God and what it says is right. And we stand with courage. We don't waver in our stand for Christ. You see, where do you get that? Well, I get it from verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's Satan's throne is. Now, that is an amazing statement. He actually says it twice. He says, where Satan's throne is, and then he comes at the end of verse 13 and says, where Satan dwells. Jesus is saying that, listen, Satan does have authority, and Satan does have rule, and there are certain places in which he has more rule and more authority than others. What Jesus was saying is that in Pergamum, Satan has incredible control over that city. That he has rule and reign over that city. And that's what it means by the fact that he has a throne there. He has a hold on that city. That's what a demonic stronghold is. Is that he has almost the entire city believing a lie. He's got a hold on them. He has authority and sway in that place. He has bound that city in lies. There are deep strongholds. I'll never forget the first time I went to Haiti. I've been all over the world. I've been to many of the poorest countries in the world. I've been all over Africa and Asia and the Middle East and South America. I have never experienced anything like the demonic oppression in Haiti. And I remember getting off the plane and meeting with a missionary who said, you know, there are a lot of people that talk about that Haiti is probably the place where Satan dwells. I thought that was the oddest statement. I never heard anything like that. But after spending a week there and seeing the presence of witchcraft and how every single thing in that country is oppressed Everything in that country is hurting and struggling where there seems to be so very little light. I knew what he meant. He meant what Jesus says about Pergamum is there are places in which the enemy seems to have a stronger hold. And he does in Pergamum. He says, I know where you live. 
Pergamum was the intellectual and religious capital of, of, of Rome at that time. It was filled with temples. There was a hill behind Pergamum, and that hill was filled with temples. And we can even go today to places like Athens, and we can see, not Athens, Georgia, Athens, Greece. We can go and we can see hills that are filled with temples and filled with idolatrous statues. And we, we like to take pictures of them, and we think they're neat, and how amazing it is they've stayed there. But do you understand every one of those things are demonic? It is a demonic stronghold. It is a lie that has been given to people to get them to believe anything but the truth. And Pergamum was filled with these. It was the center of emperor worship, meaning that everyone who lived in Pergamum was required to say these words, Caesar is Lord. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a Christian living in a place where you were required as a citizen of that town to say the words, Caesar is Lord? This is what was required of them. This would cause some conflict for us as believers in Jesus Christ. It says that even in the midst of that, look at what it says in verse 13, yet, what a powerful word, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, a place deeply oppressed, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. That you stood your ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you refused to declare Caesar is Lord. That you stood with the conviction and the courage to say that Jesus is in fact Lord. Then it says this, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now listen, we don't know a lot about him. All we know is this. He was from their church and he was killed for his faith, most likely because he refused to say Caesar is Lord and he declared at the moment in which he was going to be executed that Jesus is Lord. They saw it. He was from their church. This was not some distant possibility. This was an imminent probability that what happened to Antipas would happen to them as well. Someone from their church died for simply declaring Jesus is Lord. And he's applauding the church in Pergamum because of this. Because even when they saw their friend and beloved church member die for declaring Jesus is Lord, they stood fast with courage. They said, with great courage, we're gonna stand by our conviction that Jesus is Lord. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. One of my favorite definitions of Christian courage is by John Piper. He says this, listen, Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of earthly costs. Saying and doing the right thing regardless of earthly costs because God promises to help you and save you on account of Christ. Regardless of the cost, Choosing to stand faithful to the gospel, to do what is right and to say what is right. And what I want you to know this morning is this. The work that still needs to be done before Christ returns. The work of getting the gospel to the nations. The work of getting the gospel to your family and your neighbors is going to demand courage. Gone are the days where we can advance the kingdom of Christ without courage. There must be in our hearts a God-ordained, spirit-empowered courage to do what is right and say what is right if we will be ablaze with the truth of Christ. We must be a people who not only hold it with conviction in here, but stand with courage, listen, out there. It's easy to hold it in here. And praise God, Pastor Josh, that's right, man, that's right. We walk out of here and have no courage to share the truth. We hold it with conviction. We stand with it with courage. 
And the final one is this. We hold it with conviction. We stand with courage. And the last one is this. We protect the truth with confrontation. We hold the truth with conviction. We stand for the truth with courage. And we protect the truth with confrontation. Now, you got to stay with me on this one. We got this vision of Jesus, who is truth, therefore we must hold it. We have this affirmation that they were standing courageously, and so it is a call for us to do the same. But here is the confrontation of the church. I have a few things against you, verse 14. You have some there in your church who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. So we know the issue is regarded regarding teaching. He says it twice. There are some who hold this teaching and some who hold this teaching. We also know that this is not a majority, it is a minority. There are a few in the church who are believing wrong teaching. Now he mentions Balaam, where you can read that story in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 25, you see exactly what he's talking about here, where Balaam was used to lead the people of God into idolatry, which then led them into immorality. They believed lies, they worshiped an idol, and then they were led into immorality. But verse 15 is really important because it says the first two words there, so also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. What it's saying is the Old Testament kind of picture of idolatry, paradigm of idolatry and false teaching is Balaam. The New Testament idea is this Nicolaitans, and we don't know much about them. And frankly, it doesn't matter so much. I mean, we can do all kinds of deep study into who they are and what they believe, but that really doesn't matter because in the the pursuit of understanding maybe exactly who they are and where they came from, which I don't think we're ever going to know, we might miss the bigger point. The bigger point is this is that in the church in Pergamum, there were lies that people believed which led them into idolatry and then led them into sexual immorality. That the issue that was going on here is most likely simply, listen, an issue of worldliness. I don't want us to get this idea that there was some massive false doctrine over here that they believed, that they believed to follow uh, Benny Hinn or some other crazy preacher, and we think, well, that's, well, that's obvious. No, I don't think that's the case here, and I could show that to you from many different ways. It was more subtle than that. It was more subtle that the people begin to believe some of the lies of the enemy, the cultural lies around them, which had a stronghold on the city, and as a result, it led the people to live in immorality. Because they had simply believed some of the lies of the enemy. I mean, this is how the enemy works. He works by bringing us into a slow decline into worldliness. We believe a lie. We don't realize we believe a lie. It sets up a stronghold in our mind, and it leads us away from the Lord. I think the people in the church in Pergamum were believing lies like there is satisfaction found outside of Jesus Christ. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is anything that you go to in order to find satisfaction instead of going to Jesus Christ. And there were people in the church being led away thinking that Jesus isn't enough, so I'm gonna go outside of Jesus to find something else. And everyone saw it happen and no one did anything about it. They believed that you can be a a Christian without pursuing holiness. So here's people saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, yet everyone knew they were walking in immorality and no one did anything about it. 
They believe that you can sin without there being any consequences. We know this from just their cavalier attitude towards this. Church members walking in sin, believing a lie, living immoral lifestyles, no one's saying anything about it, and they simply believe that it's okay to continue to walk this way without confrontation or without consequences. And it's so interesting that he says there's just some of you who hold the teaching. And then verse 15, some of you who hold the teaching. The problem with the church at Pergamum is this. Listen, it's the waywardness of the minority and the nonchalance of the majority. Listen to that again. It is the waywardness of a minority. There's a minority of people walking away, walking in immorality. The bigger problem is this, the nonchalance of the majority. While this minority was walking in immorality, the majority who knew it absolutely said nothing. It was there. No one confronted it. And listen, it happens all the time. But here's the reason it matters. Look, look carefully at verse 16. This is very, very important. He says to the whole church, repent. And your response would be, well, the whole church isn't in sin. Why should the whole church repent? Because when there's a minority walking in immorality and the church does not confront it, the whole church is guilty of sin. Listen to what happens. If not, if you do not repent, I will come to you soon and war against them. Who? The minority. What Jesus is saying is this. If you, the majority, know there's sin in the church and you are not dealing with that sin and not repenting of not dealing with that sin, then I will come and deal with them if you're not going to deal with them. There, there is both fear of the Lord and incredible mercy in this statement. What it's saying is this, church, if you would just be faithful to deal with this sin and then in dealing with it, they repent and come back, then you have on my behalf dealt with the sin. If you do not deal with the sin, I will come and deal with the sin. Look what he says. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth, which should put the fear of God in anyone in the church walking in open immorality and should put the fear of God in the church for not dealing with it. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now listen. Just look up here for a minute. Let me, let me talk to you about something. This is the reason that God in his grace has given us the process of church discipline. It's, it's right there in Matthew 18. It is the words of Jesus when Jesus said, this is what you should do. Now, let me paint a picture for you. Listen carefully here. A couple more minutes, we'll be done. Matthew 18, Jesus gives this picture of the lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep, there's a shepherd. One sheep goes away. What is the loving thing for the shepherd to do? To go and get that sheep and bring it back. A loving shepherd doesn't say, you know what, if you want to go away, fine. Just go away. I don't care about you. I never liked you anyway. It doesn't do that. The shepherd goes after the sheep and does everything he can to get the sheep. Why? Because the sheep's in danger. The sheep is going to get eaten by a wolf if it is not found by the shepherd and brought back into the fold. So every time a sheep goes away, the shepherd goes, he picks it up, he brings it back into the place of safety. Right after he gives that illustration, he says this. If there is someone in the church that has sinned against you, go to them. Go get them. Go get them. Why? Because they're in danger. So go get them and bring them back. If they don't come back, take a couple of people with you and go and plead with them to repent and come back. If they still don't come back, take your Sunday school class. All of you, go after them and try to bring them back. And listen, if they still don't come back, tell it to the church. 
Why? Because we understand that someone who is walking in open sin and walking away from the Lord is in a dangerous place and the most loving thing the church can do is go plead with them to come back. Church discipline is not about getting anybody out. It's about getting all of them back in. But somehow we've gotten this idea that church discipline is the most unloving thing to do when the reality is a church that does not practice church discipline is guilty of the sin of being casual about the sin that God cares about. If we allow the the waywardness of the minority to have a nonchalance by the majority, then we as a church are guilty according to what Jesus says to the church at Pergamum. The most loving thing we can do is say, brother, I'm worried about you. I I think you're believing a lie. And listen, listen to this. Instead of talking about you, I'm gonna talk to you. You see, here's what we love to do. You know, so-and-so's doing that. My question is, have you gone to so-and-so and talked to him about the doing that? Like, don't tell me about what so-and-so's doing if you haven't talked to so-and-so about what they're doing. So instead of talking about someone walking in immorality, what we do is at a heart of love, then we go after them and say, brother, we love you and we think you're in a dangerous position. We wanna beg you to come back for your sake and the sake of the church. That is what a loving church does. Let me tell you something. If we want the blessing and presence of God on our church, we better be about that. Because that's exactly what he says at the end of verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I spent countless amount of time trying to figure out the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name written on the stone, and I am not sure at all what it means exactly. What I do know is this, listen, what I do know is this, is every single one of those three things is a reference in some way to the presence of God and the blessing of God and the provision of God, meaning this, if you want God's blessing, if you want God's provision, if you want God's presence, you deal with sin. You do not ignore the lies that others are believing, thinking that they might go away. No, you take the truth, you go to a brother, sister in love, and with convictional kindness and Galatians 6.1, a spirit of gentleness, you plead with them to get right with God. Listen, I long for this church to experience the greatness of God's blessing and provision. And I think most of us have a sense that God is doing something and these are good days and we want to see God do more and more and more. All I want you to know is this, is that if we're gonna be that kind of church, we gotta be the kind of church that instead of talking about someone, we're talking to them and pleading with those who are walking away to come back for their sake, listen, and for the sake of the church as a whole. So let me just ask you personally, are you holding the truth with conviction. Are you wavering? Do you believe that what God says is true? Are you standing with courage? Are you standing outside of this building? Are you standing with courage in the workplace, at school? Are you standing with courage? Most of all, are you protecting the truth? With godly, faithful confrontation in a spirit of love and gentleness, are you being faithful to go to those around you who you know are believing a lie instead of just patting them on the back, confronting them in it for their sake and the churches? I just pray that somehow by God's grace, we would be a church of deep convictional kindness, ablaze with the truth of God, not only reflecting the glory of his truth, but the glory of his gracious and kind character. May it be so, amen. Inspire heads and close your eyes this morning.